I think most people look at onboarding in the same way we kind of look at education where it's like, you know, you go to school, you graduate and you're done with learning. But the reality (laughs) is like you should never be done with learning. Machines are so fast and stores are so big that they give us plenty of latitude to screw things up. The shell, or which is the name we give to the command interpreter. So the operator got a pair of tweezers and very carefully fished the moth out of the relay. Because you all read the mythical man month. And the best motivator in the world for programming is, is scratching your itch. Developers, 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 developers. Hello and welcome to another season of the Sourcecraft podcast. We are starting off the year with how engineers start off when diving into new code. Onboarding is a topic of discussion for a three-part conversation with three different engineering leaders. First up is a guest from Season 1, Ryan Jurovich, DevOps Manager at Zero, one of the largest accounting software companies in the world. He talks about how to strike the right balance between autonomy and consistency, the importance of tools in the process, and how to foster a high-trust environment. Stay tuned! So I'm here with Ryan Jurovich, uh, who is a DevOps manager at Zero, and we're talking with engineering leaders about how they do technical onboarding. And this is a you know, big, hairy topic. So I uh, wanted to start out with kind of a, a very concrete question, which is, you know, if I'm a new software engineer or DevOps engineer onboarding into your team, what is that like from from my perspective? Yeah. So uh, thanks for having me. In terms of at the the company, we have a really fantastic people team who's continuously improving our onboarding experience. But in terms of kind of specifics for engineers on the more technical side of onboarding, there's a lot more autonomy in terms of making sure that experience is optimized for the specific systems that each team is working on. So depending on which team you're joining, obviously, the, the technical onboarding is going to differ for example, my team, uh, we have a pretty broad set of things that we work across with our internal customers um, and we have some internal tools as well. So one of the things that we found works really well is, is making improvements to our internal Slackbot as a first project. Cool. So your team, would you say you're, you're in kind of an internal facing team? So your, your main customers are other engineering teams uh, at Zero, is that right? Yeah, so if you've, I'm not sure if you've read the book Team Topologies, but the talks about kind of the concept of an enabling team or enablement team. Um, yep. So that's that's how we see ourselves is really to to work with other teams to get uplift in engineering practices to help improve uh, deployment frequency and kind of the four key metrics that I guess the Accelerate book references. Yeah, that's that's kind of the approach of our team is really to to work with those internal engineering teams. So this Slack bot. Does it just become this magnet for people's first contributions? Like, is it, if you look at all the features it has, can you point to like members of your team and say like, you know, that was, you know, so-and-so's first feature push? We don't kind of mandate it as being the first thing. We definitely want to uh, cater to each individual as we onboard them, but it just has worked out such that in recent times, uh, the last kind of three or four people we've onboarded have uh, decided that, hey, this feature, yeah, I can see the utility of it. It'd be really cool to work on, um, you know, and it's not a huge amount of work, but it's a really good way to kind of dip your toes and, and get a feel for how all the tooling, CICD and everything works. And yeah, it's I think it's one of those things, it's like a badge of honor in a sense with the team, like, oh yeah, someone just added a help feature because we got to a point where there were so many bits of and pieces to it that someone just wanted to query and say, hey, how does this command work or whatnot? 
I love that uh, kind of immediate focus on shipping something. I guess one question I have there is, how do you determine what issues are appropriate for someone to work on as their first project? Yeah, so I guess that comes to down to more of a, a product management uh, perspective. Even though it's you know an internal tool, a Slack bot, I still try to apply that philosophy. Um, and the good thing there is because it's an internal tool that our team uses, our team is a customer. So when you're onboarding someone, it's it's a good way to establish that rapport in the team and to talk directly with the customer of the Slack bot and say, hey, this feature that we wanted to implement, how you know would this work for you? So it's it's kind of a combination of things. It's not just the technical side with the onboarding. It's it's really nice to see um, how that kind of builds that team up, and builds the rapport. And how much, for lack of a better term, uh, handholding is there on that first issue? You know, on on the one end of the spectrum, you could be like very, you know, hey, I'm going to walk you through every step of this process and like be in the room when you meet with your users, et cetera, et cetera. And on the other end, I could see like, you know, sink or swim, you know, here's the objective, go figure out how to do it. Um, where, where do you fall uh, along that spectrum? I would say that we are trying to cater for the individual. So we want to make sure that people are supported, but we don't want to prescribe how much handholding might go on to, to use that phrase. Yeah, I, I think... The, the funny thing is, and, and this isn't um, just specific to the Slack bot, right? But onboarding in general, yeah. I think forcing remote work through a spanner in the works uh, for this stuff. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think my team actually came out stronger on this particular front. And mm-hmm. um, as a company, we we got feedback that, you know, everyone's more productive in kind of the new era of remote work. And mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're being very flexible in terms of working arrangements. I mean, it was before, but now even more so because we've, we've seen that increase in productivity. But in terms of how it's affected this, you know, you think you're new in a company and you're in the office, you would just kind of rely on shoulder taps, you know, and, and those encounters yeah. in the office. Maybe you go into the kitchen and you just grab someone quickly and ask them a question. But now we really need to make a, a habit of scheduling time with our new hires. So as a manager, there's, there's regular sync. As an engineer on the team, we kind of buddy people up and make sure that they have regular times in the calendar. And some of those times we set an expectation that, hey, we're going to meet every time. But for other times, we set an expectation that, hey, this is actually us making our time available to you, but you choose if you want to have this or not. And, you know, some people have opted for a lot of sessions and come with a list of questions and that's the way they prefer to learn. Other Mm -hmm. people, they find information kind of asynchronously through Slack or or Confluence or whatnot, and then they find that they have less of those meetings. But that model has been working really well, and I've personally really enjoyed it as a means for getting to know my new hires better. Yeah. When you can't uh, go go to a, a nice Melbourne cafe or something like that, like we used to, <laughs> you know, doing a bit of a, a Google Meet in the mornings is, is a great way to chat over a coffee or whatnot. So you kind of have these like scheduled uh, meetings with new hires that I guess it's up to their discretion, but like by default they're on, but, you know, depending on whether they feel like those are necessary, they can opt out of those as they see fit. Is that is that kind of the idea? Yeah, exactly. And I think that that really just caters for the individual and make sure that that they feel supported, but they're not like, oh yeah, have to go meet with the boss 
you know, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to chat about. You know, if it gets to that situation where they don't actually have anything to chat about, that's fine. We'll just skip that and see how we go tomorrow. Yeah, that makes sense. Apart from the kind of one-on-one FaceTime, uh, are there other onboarding specific or, or maybe just like general resources uh, that you invest in that people end up leaning on during onboarding? You know, I'm thinking like documentation or tutorials or uh, other tools that kind of help someone spin up on the code base. I guess, you know, just talking on tools, certainly early on in the process, getting access to the various tools and platforms at the company, that's a thing. But uh, thankfully, our IT team's done a pretty great job in making sure the access to tools that are appropriate to your role are kind of pre-provisions when you join. Things like SSO, directory servers, zero trust security. I think that's really improved the way that people get access to the tools because we're using cloud-based tools. Uh, it's easier to work. Remotely, it's easier to work with teams in different time zones and you get that kind of access pretty early on. Mm -hmm. But then there's uh, things in terms of like the developer experience that I think getting people to work on code earlier really helps with. So things like GitHub, CICD, AWS, shipping a change to production kind of exposes you to that full set of tools. And, you know, even everything, you know, Jira or Confluence uh, or whatnot, that's, it's just that full kind of stack. So that kind of approach, we have like a, a pretty robust on, onboarding guide in, in my team that walks you through that process and, and here's the tool that we use for this, you know, links you to a repository for say the Slack bot and says, you know, here, check out the previous PRs. You can kind of trace the flow from development through to production. And yeah, I think that that's kind of like you, you explore that journey and you, you get exposed to the docs, you get exposed to the tools through that journey. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. That first issue, by the way, I think is, is really important because it kind of drives focus in, in the process. So when we were emailing earlier back and forth, we were talking about the different stages of onboarding. And you, you'd mentioned that like there's kind of the immediate issue of like setting up your dev environment and you know going through the, the cycle of shipping something at first. But then there's kind of this later stage, which is acquiring a high level understanding of the code base and the technical architecture and, you know, all that extra context that makes you really powerful. Mm. Um, I would say like, we don't really have a good solution to ensure that people get that understanding. It's mostly just like, you know, osmosis and, and hope uh, a bit. Uh, yeah, do yeah. you have thoughts on that second stage? Yeah, for sure. Like contributing to, to that code base in that first stage doesn't cater for the complexity of the system that you're working on, right? It's just really the tooling aspect, getting a PR up. But that second yeah. part that you're talking about is if, if there is a very complex system that you're expecting someone to work on, how do you get them across that architecture? How do, how do they understand the, the way the code is structured? And I think that's probably one of the things that like Ruby on Rails and those kind of frameworks reduce the cognitive load of because you, mm -hmm. you had these conventions in place and people could jump into these types of systems quickly. But when you're talking about kind of lower level things in Go or Rust or whatnot, it's a much uh, more varied code structure. And then in terms of architecture, yeah, I think this is kind of a poorly solved problem in the industry because the thing that people tend to lean on is documentation, which often becomes stale quite fast. And that's where things that I've seen uh, recently, like tools like the Code Tour plugin for VS Code. Uh, yeah, that, that's awesome. Yeah, it's such a great way to kind of annotate the code. I mean, I haven't seen how it plays out over a long period of time. You know, the initial kind of demos of it and trials of it 
look good, but how is that going to age over time? I, I'm not really across that. I'm, I'm keen to see how that goes. Um, and the other thing is, uh, you know, to, get, to give Sourcegraph a bit of a plug, um, <laughs> when I last used it in the setting of onboarding, I think that that was really helpful because you can particularly with those very complex, you know, cross-team systems where maybe you have like a shared code library and you're kind of exploring a code base and then you need to jump to some other repository that you might not have cloned locally. You can kind of jump across the code throughout the company very quickly and drill down and use those things that, you know, it made sense if you cloned everything locally and you wanted to go to a function definition. But when it's like a huge company and and tons of different repositories, uh, it gets much harder. So I think that that's really good for getting across the code base quickly. Yeah, well, thank you for that plug. <laughs> Appreciate it. I, I think there's kind of an element of onboarding that maybe bleeds or blends into just like overall developer experience. Because I think a, a lot of what you do as a developer is you have your kind of initial onboarding when you first join a team. Uh, but then after that, you know, let's say you hop into another part of the code base or you at, you're asked to you know work on a feature that touches a substantially different part of code than, than what you're familiar with. It's kind of mm. this like continual onboarding to, to new parts of the code and like acquisition of context over time, I guess. Yeah, I think most people look at onboarding in the same way we kind of look at education where it's like, you know, you go to school, you graduate and you're done with learning. But the reality (laughs) is like you should never be done with learning. Um, And in the same way, when it comes to onboarding uh, onto code bases and infrastructure and that kind of thing, you should never be done with learning there because those systems aren't in a consistent state or hopefully, you know, aren't in a consistent state. They're evolving over time as a business evolves and being across those changes. Um, I mean, sometimes once you hit a certain scale, it doesn't even make sense to try and keep up with the change as well. Like you want to have a high level idea of what's changing, but the expectation that you're going to be across everything is just not a tractable problem for an individual to solve. Um, So I think having those tools and methods of finding the information you need as you need it is a good thing. It's a good skill to develop. It's a good tool belt to develop. So not just for onboarding, but also for your time at a company. And people at larger companies tend to move around after a bit of time to get exposure to different things. And so mm-hmm. you find when you shift into a new team, it's like, okay, there's a whole set of different services here that I'm going to be across. Now I need to apply those methods and, and use those tools to, to get across those quickly. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think once you've been at a company a while, when you do make a shift into a new team, because you have that familiarity with how, you know, what tools you're using, how things tend to be set up, what the conventions are for that company, it becomes easier to onboard onto other teams because you don't have that uh, initial hurdle to get over of adjusting to the new environment, new tools, new conventions. Yeah, there's kind of this like common knowledge base that firms up over time. And then the, the thing that you layer on top is is the more team-specific or, or maybe project-specific knowledge. So you, you touched upon earlier about how like things are, are often fluid and uh, you know evolve very quickly, especially inside you know fast-moving software organizations. I think that presents a challenge for good onboarding or for good developer education in general because it's like how do you design a curriculum for something that hasn't solidified yet? Like you, you can do the general development environment. That's probably not going to change drastically, but then for the newer parts of the code base, is it worth investing in any sort of process there at all? 
or is it just skill that people have to acquire over time? You know, just get good at figuring out stuff yourself. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's definitely a good good skill to have. But that level of detail tends not to be the point of friction with you know onboarding that I've seen. It's more things like understanding the tech stack, particularly for onboarding. A lot of people join a company and it's like they've got experience using a set of tools. They want to understand how that maps onto the tools that a company are using. So, just having a a good understanding of the tech stack and it might not just be for the tools that are being used currently, but it's also if I need to make a decision, you know, say I'm implementing some new thing and I need SMTP, how am I going to send email? Like what platform are we using for sending email? And uh, having that awareness of what the tools are or where to find the information about what the preferences are for the company. And obviously the larger a company gets, the more important this becomes because when a lot of startups, what you find I think is when you join a a company that's made a quick transition from a a scrappy startup into a bigger company, you tend to find this very large number of tools. And then a company tends to go through that stage of, okay, how do we consolidate all of these different tools? Because this is not going to scale. This is not efficient. And they end up going through that consolidation phase. But at the start, it's a bit of a scatter of all these different things because there might not be that guidance. There might not be that structure in place to say, hey, we want to use this. And that's probably a good thing, actually, from an innovation perspective. You want people to be able to just solve the problem in front of them, not get bogged down in in process or anything and, and try out different things to see what's going to work well and what's going to work the best. But yeah, that's part of the onboarding education challenge, I think, is just making sure that there's that clarity. And I think that that's something that I think Zero does particularly well is we we have like an internal tech radar that identifies the technologies um, and even that itself and that format is evolving over time, which is mm. really, really exciting to see. Uh, it's a really solid piece of guidance from the company, um, which helps engineers make decisions. That's awesome. Is that something just tracks like every new technology or framework or thing that gets adopted uh, inside the company? Yeah, I mean, this. there's a bit to this, but okay. yes, essentially, yes. I guess the thing that I think is quite interesting with on, on this kind of related note is understanding the distribution of tools, languages, frameworks, that kind of thing. Large companies have thousands of repositories and it's, you know, at, at multiple companies I've worked at now, you're talking about thousands of repositories, right? And they're all in different states of the life cycle. Some of these things get marked as deprecated or retired and some of them are kind of per service repositories some might be small mono repos you can have kind of a state where you have multiple mono repos and have multiple monoliths at a company um, yeah. some things are shared libraries uh, this and that um, and then they could all be using different languages different frameworks and a thing that we have that's really cool is like an internal service catalog and i'd actually uh, built or prototyped, I would say, a similar tool at Cloudflare. And um, companies Mm. have talked about this kind of like Spotify open source, their backstage tool, which is backstage.io. And that's a service catalog as well. And the idea is kind of capturing that service ownership. But once you catalog all of your different components, that provides a means to start to analyze what language is this, 
what framework are we using what dependencies get pulled in you know who owns this where are the relevant links to docs and things like that but then you can start to do analysis on that data as well and understand the distribution of things which is it's really cool when you get to that scale and being able to use that to inform decisions about particular technologies and then provide guidance based on that so uh, going back to that earlier question about helping to inform the engineers when they're picking up something and want to run with it if they can see that like hey this is the technology that 80 percent of our systems are using they can have that confidence that there's going to be a large amount of expertise at the company to provide support if you get into a bit of a pickle with that technology or, or just want to ask some questions that sounds awesome before i let you go here if i could ask you uh for a moment if you could like take us back in time to before you were a DevOps manager and engineering leader, you know, back in your you know early days of your career when you were a junior uh, software engineer or, or whatever, and you were diving into you know your your first or second large code base, do you have any like challenges, pains, or, or I guess like war stories that you remember <laughs> from from that era of your your life that have kind of informed uh, your view on on these things? You know, pains you felt that you would uh, uh, like to help others avoid. Yeah, that's a that's a big question. <laughs> uh, lots lots of things are popping into my mind, but uh, I would say the the feeling that I remember when working with a big group of people and kind of doing a pull request to a system that a lot of people were going to look at. It, there's a bit of intimidation, I think. Just like mm. it is a, I don't know if it's imposter syndrome, but you you feel like it's you're you're being judged at a scale that you hadn't been judged before, right? And you're yeah. you're kind of working with with a large number of people, and maybe that was just the particular culture of the place that I was at at the time. I certainly mm-hmm. hope that today that, you know, when I have uh, a more junior engineer join my teams, that they're not feeling this, you know, you certainly want them to, to feel welcome and to have that safety for them to put up a, a PR and feel that it's only going to be a positive kind of learning experience. There's not going to be any of that. But certainly when I, I remember those first few PRs that I put up as a junior <laughs> and uh, people came in pretty heavy with the comments and it just, yeah, it was it was quite intimidating at the time. But once I kind of understood the approach people were using the conventions, I think that intimidation wore off and I felt more capable at, at putting together a PR that first time every time was unlikely to attract such comments. Yeah, I think there's an element of, of feeling intimidated and a little bit of feeling frustrated too, at least for me, like making the jump from school where it was mostly individual projects or, or very small teams where you, you knew the uh, other people very well to working now with a lot of people that you've only known briefly in a professional context. And it's something like code review before you actually working in, in the professional world code review, if you do it at all, is just like walking your, you know, friend through this change set that, that you just made. And then, and then you're done. Whereas going into an organization for the first time, there's all these conventions and standards and a substantive context about the architecture and how this fits with, you know, other pieces of the code and, and all that, that you just like have no idea about uh, until you've, you've kind of attempted to submit your first PR and then, you know, gotten all those comments from, from people who are like, well, you know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting observation, the, the kind of shift from people that you're friends with to this professional setting. And I think that that kind of highlights the importance of building trust in teams. 
Mm-hmm. If you have a high trust environment and you create a safe space for people, it means that going through that process of creating a PR, you know, your first contributions, you should feel much more comfortable in doing that and removing that kind of intimidation factor and making it a more friendly environment. So it's not like you're going from friends at school to all these strangers in the workplace, but you know, it's a team that you feel there's a level of trust there that you can go and do something and you're not going to get in trouble for what you did or whatnot. And certainly, yeah, that's something I always am trying to think about. How do we make sure we have high trust environments? How do we make sure we have that safety, make sure people have a really positive onboarding experience and that the experience in general, like that stands true for everything, right? Not just juniors, but you want that environment for everybody. Yeah. Especially if I decide uh, the Slack bot needs a new feature and, uh, you know, maybe I I just want to write a bit of code on the weekends and, uh, yeah, I don't want my PRs to get uh, (laughs) too much negative feedback, uh, which, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm yet to see, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely danger uh, when, you know, one switches from IC to manager track. After being out of the code for a while, you go back in and you realize just how much additional context you have to be mindful of when writing that feature. Yeah, 100%. Cool. Well, thanks so much for for taking the time to chat today, Ryan, and and for sharing uh, your experiences with onboarding and and how you think about onboarding at, uh, at Zero. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Sourcegraph podcast is a production of Sourcegraph, the universal code search engine, which gives you fast and expressive search over the world of code you care about. Sourcegraph also provides code navigation abilities like jump to dev and references in code review and integrates seamlessly with your code host, whether you're working in open source or on a big, hairy enterprise code base. To learn more, visit sourcegraph.com. See you next time.